We just sang, not this song, but the previous one. We sang, this robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. It's interesting to think about the only thing that keeps me, the real me, from heaven is this earthen vessel, this tabernacle of clay that we hold this treasure in. This treasure is held in earthen vessels. I'd like to introduce to you, mostly from the words of Scripture, some of our fathers in the faith and brothers, um, not so much sisters tonight, um, mostly from the pages of Scripture, that have been asked by the Lord to give up their life. And I'll go ahead and give you the punchline. It was mentioned in Nathan's prayer, and that is that the Lord may not ask us to give up our physical life. He may not do that for this generation. He has chosen to restrain the wrath of Satan and the wrath of wicked men from inflicting physical pain on his children for the time being. We don't know how long that would last. But for this generation and perhaps the last couple hundred years, we have not been asked, most of us have not been asked, a few Christians here and there occasionally have, but we likely will not. But yet, the Bible so clearly tells us that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that a true Christian's life will be marked by one of cost. So I ask you, in what ways has the Christian life and your life of faith cost you? It may not cost you blood. We've not shed blood striving against sin, we'll read later. Although we should be willing to shed blood to strive against sin, if that's what it took to strive against sin. But we haven't been asked to do that. But we have been asked to give up something, some cost. And so perhaps you can be thinking tonight about what you have given up and what you should be willing and what perhaps is still in your life that you can give up for the cost, for the cost of your faith. Turn in Scripture with me, please. And we'll have to turn fast because it is difficult to cram 6,000 years of Hatred into 30 minutes. Genesis chapter 4, we'll read about the first martyr in Scripture. And I will be mostly following an outline that our pastor produced some 20 years ago. Don't quote me on that date. Entitled, The Martyrs of Jesus. Abel was slain for the correct worship of God. We see in Genesis chapter 4, starting, say, in verse 4. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thou thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. A couple of other passages in the Bible tell us that he slew him because his own works were evil, but his brother's works were righteous. So the wicked hate the righteous, we see. And from this very first book of the Bible, we also notice one other thing. Let's let's look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yes. Verse 10. And he said, What hast thou done? And here we see a precedent. 
the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Ah, so the Lord considers it highly interesting and of singular importance that someone was killed for being righteous. So much so that he yet speaketh, the Bible tells us, with his blood crying to God from the ground. So we see that precedent. The wicked hate the righteous, and were it not for the Lord restraining the wicked's hand on this generation, the wicked would still physically hate and persecute the righteous as they have for most of this world's existence. Let's go on in the rest in uh, some of the other passages of the Old Testament. First Samuel chapter 22. This one will just burn you up. Remember Doeg the Edomite? There are some bad guys in the world. And there's, then there are some bad guys in a different way. They're called the sons of Belial. They're seriously bad guys. Right. Doeg the Edomite was one of these guys. This one just burn you up. This one and the next one we'll look at just make you mad. Let's start at verse, uh, let's see, first Samuel 22. We'll start at, uh, uh, verse 9. David had just fled from Saul. And run to the priest and begged for food and said, please feed me something. I'm trying to hide from Saul. And can you feed me and my men? And the high priest did it. However, there was a guy there called Doeg the Edomite that witnessed that event and ended up uh, doing some serious damage because of that. Then answered, verse 9, Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse? In that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day. So he's implying and he's assuming that he was confederate with David in trying to overthrow Saul, which is a totally incorrect assumption. But Saul's a whiner. We'll go on. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law? And goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the priests of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, he knew he could trust, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew on that day fourscore and five persons. That did wear a linen ephod. How in the world? What did those priests do to deserve that kind of death? How in the world could this Doeg the Edomite be so blind and so vicious as to kill that many priests? Even if one was guilty, why kill all of them? 
But Doeg's not done. 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword. Baby, he just got a blank check and he filled it. He wrote it. Both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen, and asses, and sheep with the edge of the sword. Wow. Now that is the wicked hating the righteous and the righteous donkeys. What in the world? That Where did that viciousness come from? It comes directly from hell. Many of the Lord's uh, prophets were killed in the days of Jezebel, I'll bring to your remembrance. I won't go into detail. We don't have time. I'll also remind you that Ahab and Jezebel conspired and killed Naboth for holding to the commandments of the Lord regarding his inheritance rights for his vineyard. And he was killed for it. Turn with me to the other one to make you fight mad. Second Chronicles 24. You may recall our pastor spending some time on these verses not too long ago. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, right? He reigned 40 years. And who was the old priest that took care of him and guided him in the ways of righteousness for the first part of his life? Jehoiada. Jehoiada was a wise, righteous, caring, loving man. He was a priest. We'll cue in when, uh, in verse 15, when Jehoiada dies. Second Chronicles 24, 15. But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died. And 130 years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. False flattery, we'll see. Then the king hearkened unto them. Uh-oh. The king is Joash, if I didn't say that. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their trespass. Yet he sent prophets, back to Newell's point about God being good. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. Verse 20, and the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. Something's got to be done, said Zechariah. These people, the whole nation's turning against God, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. Now, that was a message they didn't want to hear. They had heard enough of that with Jehoiada. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones At the commandment of the king. Who was the king? Joash. Can you believe it? Oh, what a pity. Right. In the court of the house of the Lord. They didn't even take him outside. They want him dead now. And they didn't want to kill him by beheading him. They wanted to stone him. So we felt a little bit. Why? Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died... That is, when Zechariah died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. Did the Lord look upon it and require it? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And all the prophets in between, Abel and Zechariah, he required it at the hand of that Jewish nation. We uh, an interesting uh, an interesting next comment was Urijah was killed by Jehoiakim during the ministry of Jeremiah, the prophet. This was right before Babylon was took uh, Jerusalem captive and uh, Urijah hired a uh, I'm sorry, Jehoiakim hired a hitman to chase Urijah down into Egypt. 
And he did, and he found him on there, brought him back up, and Jehoiakim killed him. And Urijah was a prophet of the Lord that said the same thing that Jeremiah did. Coming on into the New Testament, we recall that John the Baptist was imprisoned and slain as part of the celebration of a birthday party. We note that the deacon Stephen was stoned to death, yet another stoning, for his testimony of Jesus. And we recall at his death, when he when he looked up and saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. Yeah, similar to what Jesus did when he was killed. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Lay not this sin to their charge, he said. I'm nothing. Don't count this personal offense in their bad record of bad deeds, because I'm nothing. But, remember what Zechariah said, the Lord look upon it and require it. The Lord look upon it, because that is an offense to the kingdom of God, and the Lord will look upon it and require it. I do not really have time, uh, but I'm going to read a couple out of a couple excerpts out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you'll fast forward with me about a thousand years, I'm going to introduce you to. I have four picked out. Uh, three of uh, three of them, even the young people have not heard of, but one of them, the young guy that was 19. I think I'll read little excerpts of that one. Uh, but I want you to hear. Fast forward a thousand years. We will see the same vicious hatred of the righteous shining forth in papal Rome, the Antichrist. But you'll recognize that hatred and that nonsensical fury. William was a guy of 19 years old. He was originally arrested for wandering into a Catholic chapel, because that's where the Bible was, and sitting there and reading the Bible. It wasn't mass time. It wasn't Sunday or whatever. But he went to the chapel to read the Bible. The father came in and said, are you meddling with the Bible? Atwell demanded. Do you know what you're reading? Can you expound the scriptures? Oh, I don't take it upon myself to expound the scriptures, William explained. I found it here and was reading it to comfort myself. Father Atwell commented. It hasn't been a happy world since the Bible was published in English. Oh, don't say that. It's God's book from which we know, from which we learn to know what pleases and displeases God. Didn't we know that before? Not as well as we do now with the Bible available, William replied. I pray we always have it with us. Father Atwell fumed. I know you. You're one of those who dislikes the Queen's laws. If you don't mend your ways, you and many other heretics will broil. God give me grace to believe his word and confess his name no matter what happens, William retorted. I'll skip some, but he rushes out and gets a higher-ranking Catholic, and he basically tells them the exact same thing. He was reading the Bible for comfort, and what's wrong with that? More words passed between them concerning the sacrament of communion, on which William explained his point of view. Accused of being a heretic, he replied, I wish you and I were both tied to the stake to prove which of us would defend his faith the longest. I think you recant first. We'll see about that, he replied, and leaving to report the boy to the master the master of the town. William was put in the stocks in London for two days, fed only a crust of brown bread and a cup of water before he defended himself to the bishop. Ah, the next rung up. Getting nowhere with the boy, Bonner, who was the bishop, ordered him locked up in jail with as many claims against him as he could muster. How old are you? He asked William. Nineteen. Well, you'll be burned before you're twenty if you don't do better than you did today. William spent nine months in jail, appearing before the bishop six times including the time he was condemned finally on February 9th. That day, the bishop made William his final offer. 
If you recant, I'll make you a free man and give you 40 pounds to set up a business. Or I'll make you the steward of my house. I like you. You're smart. And I'll take care of you if you recant. William replied, thank you. But if you can't change my mind through scripture, I can't turn from God for love of the world. I count all worldly things but loss and dung compared to the love of Christ. If you die believing this way, the bishop said, you will be condemned forever. God judges righteously, justifying those whom man condemns unjustly, William maintained. He was sent back to prison for a month, then taken to his home city. Uh, his parents visited him there and encouraged him. They, they said they were proud to have a son that was willing to die for Christ's sake. At the stake, William asked the people to pray for him. The master Brown sneered, pray for you. I wouldn't pray for you any more than I would a dog. I forgive you. I'm not asking for your forgiveness, yelled Brown. Seeing a priest approaching with the Bible, William called out, get away, you false prophet. Beware of them, people. Do not take part in their plagues. The priest replied, as you burn here, so you will burn in hell. You lie, false prophet, William cried. Get out of here. The fire was lit. William tossed his psalter to his brother. William, his brother called, think of the holy passion of Christ. Don't be afraid of death. I'm not. William lifted his hands to heaven and said, Lord, 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 receive my spirit. Dropping his head into the smoke, William Hunter gave up his life for the truth, sealing it with his blood to the praise of God. John Leaf, 20 years old, was burned with another older man named Bradford. These are in England. Brought before the Bishop Bonner. This is this all happened in about 1555. He admitted he did not believe the bread and wine were Christ's actual body and blood, but rather were a remembrance of them. He also stated that the Catholic confession wasn't necessary and that a priest had no power to absolve sins. Serious crimes, right? He was returned to prison, tried again by persuasion, threats, promises, getting nowhere, uh, he asked uh, if he believed in the doctrines of some of the recent martyrs. He said he absolutely did. Uh, it is the true light of the word of God that I stand by, etc. They sent him a, they sent him two letters to sign, one containing a recantation and one containing a uh, confession. He ripped up the recantation and he took a pen, pricked his hand and put his blood on the confession because he was agreeing to everything they they uh, said that he was guilty of. Bradford and Leaf, Leaf is the 20-year-old, went to the stake together, Bradford lying on one side of it to pray and Leaf on the other. After they had prayed silently for an hour, one of the sheriffs asked, said to Bradford, get up and end this. The press of the crowd is great. They both got up. Bradford kissed a piece of firewood in the stake itself before addressing the crowd. England, he cried, repent of your sins. Beware of idolatry. Beware of false antichrists. See, they don't deceive you. Then he forgave his persecutors and asked the crowd to pray for him. Turning his head to Leaf, Bradford told him, Be at peace, brother. We will have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. Both men ended their lives without fear, hoping to obtain the prize for which they had long run. Here are some charges against two others, and then I'll move on. He did not believe Christ's physical body was present in the sacrament. Amen. See how many of these you believe you agree with. He did not believe there was any sacrifice in the mass and no salvation in a mass said in Latin. Amen. He believed in seeing a good priest for advice, 
but not for confession, which did nothing to save a man. He did not believe the Catholic doctrine agreed with God's word. He was present in Carver's house, one of the others, when 12 others, with 12 others, to hear the English service and prayers. Ah, While he was traveling, he stopped in this guy's house, and they had a church service in English. And this was one of the charges against him at his death. He believed that all the sacrifices, services, and ceremonies of the Catholic Church are full of errors, worth nothing, and against God's word. (laughs) They stated the charge so well, so accurately. He believed that the bread and wine were only a remembrance of Christ, not his actual body and blood. He believed the mass was directly against God's word and church, etc. We could go on and on and on. We could go on and on. This is, this is just a tiny fraction of the Fox's Book of Martyrs up here. And the Fox's Book of Martyrs up here is only one of the books that describes hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of similar martyrs who died for the cause of Jesus Christ and for the testimony of his word. It is estimated that somewhere between 1 million and 50 million were killed during the period of 1260 years that the Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire, ruled Europe. Who knows how many? Nobody could keep accurate records. They were too scared of running for their lives. Most of the accurate records we have were written in the 15 and 1600s as the power of the Catholic Church was beginning to wane by virtue of the Church of England coming into power and causing some consternation, some fighting. And the Church of England was able to keep some of the records. That's where John Fox came from. That's where Steve, the other one, Stephen Marlowe, uh, Stephen Moreland, Stephen Moreland. Um, they were English guys that kept track of this. There's a prophecy in Scripture. Scripture records many prophecies about the, the uh, uh, martyrs. We recall in Daniel, Daniel 7 that Daniel saw a little horn growing out of the Roman Empire that would make war with the saints, prevail against them, and wear them out. So he prophesied that that would occur in Daniel 7. This is clearly the Antichrist in papal Rome. Jesus warned his own disciples that some of them would be killed in Matthew 24, 9. Let me find that verse real quick. Matthew 24, 9 says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. That's a tough life being a disciple. Ah, but it's a glorious one. It's a glorious one. What were they killed for? They were killed for the righteousness we saw with Cain and Abel. They were killed for the word of God. They were killed for the testimony of Jesus, and they were killed for opposing Roman Catholicism. Turn to Hebrews 11, if you will, and let's read Paul's summary of some of the uh, the trials that these went through. They did it for a, a better resurrection, verse 35 tells us. Hebrews 11.36 will start. 11.36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. We read about some of the cruel mockings, and you, and you can read about pages and pages of others where they would just mock these guys for days on end, feeding them nothing, forcing them to stand, and burning their hands or cutting off their knuckles in between. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. We've read about some of that. They were sawn asunder. 
Jewish history tells us that the prophet Isaiah was killed in that manner. We're tempted. Recant. Recant and I'll save you. I'll give you 40 pounds. You hear him? Recant. Just say you love the Pope or whatever it was they had to admit to. Just say this cracker is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. One of the books that I had the pleasure of reading, I believe it was the Samuel Moreland, uh, is focused on those martyrs who lived, the Waldensians who lived in the northern part of Italy, in the valleys and the mountains of the Piedmont of Italy, and literally they wandered about having nothing. They had given up everything. Living in caves. Sometimes they'd come behind them when they found them and seal the cave shut they lived in and just kill whole families. And then verse 38 says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The world was not worthy of them. Ah, the revenge of the martyrs. The reward of the martyrs. The glory of the martyrs. Turn with me, if you will. To Revelation chapter 6. You know, we're told that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How much more is the death of his saints precious if they have given up everything prior to that death? Yes, it's precious if you live a good life and die at a good old age having a life full of good works. Yes, that's absolutely precious. How much more precious is it to God if he's given a life full of tormentings of cost, of giving up everything because they valued not their own life for the sake of preserving the gospel. Right. How about Revelation chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 11? And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, we've read about some of those souls. And where are they? Where do we find them after they're dead? After they give it this tabernacle of flesh, the next instant, where are they? They're at the pinnacle of the universe underneath the throne of God. What safer place can there be? What better place of vantage for the whole universe? But what, what better place of power having God saying the following words to you? They, crowd, cry, they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Oh, yes, he's holy and he's true. Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? On them that dwell on the earth. Here's his response. And white robes were given unto every one of them. White robes of what? The righteousness of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of their practical lives. White robes were given unto every one of them. Their works do follow them, we're told. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. There's a set number of deaths. There's a set number. There's a set time. And then the Lord will avenge the death of these people. Turn over to Roman uh, Revelation 14. A couple chapters over. Revelation 14, verses 8 through 13. Let me read some pretty serious language. This is the actions of the God that is holy and true. Verses 8 through 13 of chapter 14. 
And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is falling. Babylon is the, of course, the, the papal Rome, the Antichrist, the Church of Rome. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, interesting because the Catholic Church is known, of course, for its images, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. That means the real substance into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. This isn't no five minute or 45 minute burning that they inflicted on the Christians. This is forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, these saints that we read about and that I've introduced to you had many of them had pages of scripture such as this. And they could have read the following verse and taken great comfort in it. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Oh, there's comfort in Scripture, isn't there? There's comfort in Scripture. Can you imagine the families of some of the men or women that were imprisoned being handed scraps and pages of this in a dark cell and reading a verse like, here is the patience of the saints. Just hold on. Just wait. You're getting to be added to the number of one of the jewels of the Christian faith and be kept under the altar of God. Can you believe it? Go for it. There's just a few more of you, and then the vengeance will come. Then the revenge will come. And it's the Lord that does that. What are we to learn from this? These martyrs gave a true picture of what it is to fear the Lord and nothing else. They feared the Lord. John describes them as loving not their lives unto the death. So back to my original question. What do you love about your life that you should not be willing to give up? If the Lord asked you to, what about your life is so precious that it would keep you from becoming one of those important places, one of those important men of the faith? Right. And he doesn't ask that of you. He just asks you to be a living sacrifice. That's all. A living sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He asked maybe the sacrifice of praise, the calves of your lips. That's what he asked for. Paul used the martyrs to a great advantage to exhort all of us to greater faithfulness. If you're in Hebrew, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll read the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 12, and then we'll close. We just read the last few verses of Hebrews 11, verses 36 through 38. We'll start with chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, next sentence, seeing we also are compassed about, With so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. 
So this is a cloud of witnesses that includes those that were stoned and sawn asunder and tempted and slain with the sword. The others in that cloud of witnesses are some of the others listed in Hebrews 11 that had faith. They're watching us. As Stephen put it Friday night, they're Sunday night, they're cheering us on. They're watching our lives and seeing what we're doing for the cause of Christ, what we're willing to give up. And they're rejoicing with us when we repent and give up some sin and follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. These are witnesses. It's as if we're in a fishbowl running. And they're outside the glass looking at us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. That has not been the request that God has asked of you. He could, but he doesn't. Let's be a living sacrifice. Let's do those things that Jesus Christ asked us to do that are reasonable. That are reasonable. Can we give up 15 more minutes a day to read the Bible that these martyrs died for? Can Can we find something in our life to cut out? Let's not let these martyrs have died in vain and left us with this sensual, carnal generation and we get to float through and act like Christians. Nah, call ourselves Christians. Nah, let's not do that. The voice of these martyrs crieth from the ground and they're crying from under the altar of God. Brother Newell. 264 in our Burgundy hymnals. Please join me in standing as we sing this. Hymn number 264. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood, thy shed, that thou might ransom me.
I have brought to thee down from my home above salvation, full and free, my pardon and my love. Brethren, he didn't just justify us, as our brother has emphasized so much over the past few months. He adopted us. He didn't just forgive us of our sins. He brought his love to us. He made us part of his family. I bring, I bring rich gifts to thee. What hast thou brought to me? I bring, I bring rich gifts to thee. Each and every one of us, brethren, as a child of God, have had these wonderful gifts brought from our brother and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Brother Eric amply described, what are we bringing back to him? Our most gracious Father, we thank you for what our brother has brought from history and especially from thy word, Lord, of those who loved you and were willing to give their lives. Father, as our brother said as well, you haven't asked us to do that. You've asked us to present our lives as a living sacrifice to you. Help us, Father, that we might do that. Help us that no matter what we do this evening, if you grant us tomorrow or the next day or the next, Lord, that our primary thought would be to give you back what you deserve. Praise, thanksgiving, adoration, and a life that is lived just like our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to do that. Forgive us when we don't, and strengthen us for this task. Dismiss us now with thy blessing, Father, and watch over us, for we commit the keeping of our lives into thy hand, and ask it in that most precious name of all, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.